Psalm 22, 6 has been called the forgotten I am. Seven times John records the words of Jesus, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and life, I am the true vine. Here in Psalm 22 and verse 6, I am the worm, I am a worm, and no man, a reproach to men and despised by the people. Now, you may not like singing about yourself as a worm, but this image is necessary for Christ to identify with me because Christ did not become a sinner like me. He became a worm, lower than human form, the lowest of the low, and despised by all, that He might provide for us justification. This psalm becomes a prophetical conversation between Jesus and the Father. That's what, as you read through it, you say, oh, okay, now it may make a little more sense to you. But David is also identifying himself with Jesus. And so you can begin, as David is writing it, verse 1, he felt forsaken. By the time you get to verse 3, but the Lord is holy and trustworthy. And then David is writing in verse 6, I am a worm. By verse 9, the Lord is watching over me from my mother's womb. Verse 11, trouble is near, but verse 19, the Lord is near. Whatever else you may remember, the application of Psalm 22. While it's going to take us in another direction, the application for you right now in your life of Psalm 22 is that no matter how difficult the circumstance, you're not hanging on a cross Your life is not being threatened, at least not yet. Nothing is being taken from you, and not too many people say about you what was said about Christ. But the application, no matter how difficult the circumstance, God is ever before us in ways that relate directly to our need. Or to put it another way, God has provided for every inadequacy. Do you know this little chorus? Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. He was crucified. For me He died on Calvary. That is why I know that He loves me so. He is all, all I need. It's a Messianic Psalm 22. It gives to us two important aspects of our Lord's ministry on earth. We'll look at only one of them today. 1 Peter puts it together. 1 Peter 1, Peter says, It was prophesied of the grace that should come and appear before you, testified beforehand these two things. One, of the sufferings of Christ. We'll look at that this week. Two, of the glory that should be revealed. And we'll follow on with the end of chapter 22 next week. We'll follow this simple outline, first simply looking at the rejected Savior. I shouldn't say simply, but looking at the rejected Savior, beginning with verse 1 down through verse 21, Jesus quoted verse 1. In fact, I may mention it later or even next week, there are many who think Jesus quoted the entire Psalm 22 from the cross. I wasn't there. 
Neither were you. So I'm not going to argue with them. But it's amazing to think. And he begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was about the ninth hour, as we know from the story in Matthew 27 and other places, our 3 p.m., during alternate times of light and dark, as you'll see described here. This was the agonizing cry of loneliness. I, I will say this is something that you and I will probably never fully experience. To be fully cast away from every loved one, every human, every other person, to be despised, totally rejected, and even your own father must turn away. This is forsaken by the Father, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but you hear me not. And in the night season am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. That the father would have to turn his head away from the son is a mystery too profound for us to understand. Certainly impossible for me to adequately explain. As I mentioned to you earlier, this psalm for me is like a rabbit hole. You know how you get on your phone sometimes, you click on one thing and it goes to another thing and another thing. Psalm 22 is that. You'll go to one verse and you'll compare that with another. And then they'll take it to another passage and another passage. And everything about the crucifixion of Christ is right here. I suppose it was predictable, if not understandable, that many of the others, including his own disciples, would walk away. Jesus said it would happen. Perhaps they were wondering if somehow they had misunderstood as darkness fell over the land and Christ hung suspended but that the Father who orchestrated it all, remember the Father orchestrated this from the beginning of time, would now leave Jesus to suffer is beyond something we could have imagined would be necessary. Certainly nothing we would have demanded. Said, yes, let it happen. Jesus had predicted in John 16 that the hour would come and his disciples would scatter, leaving him alone. And yet he said, still, he said, but I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But had the Father not forsaken him, turned away at this time, he would have suffered more and more and more technically in a theological way. Had God the Father not turned away, his son would have not died. But he left alone to die for us. You'll come to that moment of life sometimes when you're dealing with someone who's suffering. And the closest you ever get to this pain is when you have to look at dad, you have to look at mom, to look at your wife, and some loved one, and you whisper in their ear and you say, it's okay. It's okay. I'll see you on the other side. And you turn something off, you let them go. The sorrow of your heart, the agonizing effect of that is just overwhelming sometimes. That's what God the Father had to do. Well, the Father forsook the Son to this suffering, first of all, because of His own holiness. 
the holiness of God, verse 3 says, Thou art holy. The Father, in 2 Corinthians 5, made Him, that is Jesus, the Father made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so the Father in this moment had to reject, that is, decline to come to His rescue. He had to reject His Son, that He, Jesus, might become a covering for our sin, and we might be called the children of God, Romans 9. Well, the holiness of God demanded no less than a holy sacrifice that we, the enemies of God, might be reconciled to Himself. The Father also forsook the Son because of His own glory, the glory of God. Verse 3 continues, God inhabits the praises of His people, or the praises of Israel, it says. That word inhabits, if you have an NIV, it says enthroned. Where was the glory of God enthroned in the Old Testament? There on the mercy seat, above the ark, in the tabernacle. What did the priest have to do on the mercy seat to offer atonement for sin? That's where the priest would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats in anticipation of their salvation, which was to come, but itself could never take away sin. They just never imagined that their Messiah, when He came, would not just offer a sacrifice and say, okay, that's good enough, because Christ offered it but that Christ would come and be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins. He Himself would be the sacrifice. That's what they stumble over. Our salvation by the blood of Christ has forever been the intent of God from the first animal sacrifice, which you may have skipped over. Most of you know it, but you may have skipped over in Genesis when they were suddenly clothed with skin, where did that come from? Animals that had to be sacrificed. And it is now to the ultimate praise and glory of God the Father, which after all is the character of God. Verses 4 and 5 says, They trusted in God. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were never disappointed. What Israel looked forward to, we now look back upon. God kept His promise then, and you can be certain He will keep His promise to you now. Verse 2 begins, I cried out, but you didn't respond. You ever felt like that? I cried out, I, I asked the Lord to help, but no help ever came. What's up with that? But by verse 21, He concludes, Thou hast heard and saved, at which point the whole narrative of Psalm 22 changes. We'll come to that next week. While forsaking His Son was necessary in that moment, it is equally important to understand that God's reputation is on the line. He can't leave Him forsaken. God would return to His Son three days later. We know the story now, don't we? And accomplish what no one could have imagined. Not even those who were closest to Him, who had been told about it, not even they could have imagined what would fully occur. The character of God confirms what Romans 10, 13 says. That if you will confess, whosoever shall call 
upon the name of the Lord, as it says here in verse 5, will never be disappointed. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's reputation is on the line with that promise. You can be sure. Well, that Christ would be forsaken by the Father, it confounds our thoughts. And it continues, he was despised by the people. Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. You have to turn to your references in Matthew 27 read more about this. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing that He delights in him. But thou art He that took me out of the womb. So now he's reflecting back upon being dependent. God, in human form, we know Him as Jesus, dependent upon mother's milk. Thou didst make me hope when I was yet upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Treated like less than a man, in fact, as a common earthworm. Socially, they attacked his reputation, calling him a drunkard. Matthew 11 and other places. Legally, they undermined his trial, as you've seen pictures and read stories of the trial, and corrupt judges and false witnesses brought against him. Physically, they subjected him to the most humiliating brutality known to man. Cruelly, they would not even allow him to die in peace as they mocked him, hurled insults at him, shook their heads in sarcasm, saying, as it says here in verse 8, recorded for us in Matthew 27, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Then we'll believe him. In passing, may I just point out the faulty logic of their insult. Suggesting, as it here does in verse 8, also in Matthew 27, but here specifically in verse 8, suggesting that if you live by faith, God will always deliver you from trouble. Therefore, if you're not living by faith, you're going to be forever trapped in your trouble. That was the argument of Job's friends. But that argument was debunked by Daniel's friends. When they stood before the king and said, O king, live forever, so they're showing respect, our God will deliver us from the fiery furnace, and if not, we'll be delivered from you, king. And that's what Paul meant when he said, when he said, uh, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is no contradiction between God's love and human suffering. What you may wish to be delivered from, God may deliver you through. Verses 9 and 10, they're clear reference to the birth of Christ in this most vulnerable state, dependent upon His mother. God protected Him, you remember then? 
from the slaughter that Herod brought upon all the infants across the land. God protected him then when he was totally vulnerable. But now we come to this lengthy section of graphic detail when Jesus was not delivered from death, but delivered through death. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. It's closing in now. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me. Remember, this is poetic language, the enemies of God. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and roaring lines. The words, the insults, you can just imagine. I mean, you've seen hateful people say hateful things. And you can just imagine how it's coming forth. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Well, they didn't know anything about crucifixion back then. The Jews in particular. I may tell all my bones. You can count my ribs. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. And, and every other translation changes this verse, but it is significant. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture, a particular garment. Likely five garments are worn, divided out among the five guards, but this vesture, this is the one they cast lots for. But again, that's the rabbit hole we'd go down. Be not far from me, O Lord, my strength Haste to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. My darling, from the, this is the one and only, right? The, my beloved son. From the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast this lion that's walking about seeking whom he may devour. For thou hast heard me. And again, every other translation will take this mystical statement out. You'll say, what in the world is that about? Save me, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. We'll come back to that. Now keep in mind that crucifixion was not known to the Jews. There were times that a dead body might be hung on a tree, sort of as a deterrent to, you know, hey, if you, if you commit this crime, this is what will end up, this is what you end up doing. But to actually die on the tree was devised by by societies like the Assyrians. It was perfected by the Romans. What David describes, however, is exactly what Christ suffered. Surrounded by bloodthirsty brutes, bulls, lions, dogs, your translation may say wild ox, the horned unicorns. We'll get back to it. Verse 14. Describe his failing strength and joints that are out of place, but remember, not a bone was broken. Verse 15 tells us of the terrible thirst that's experienced by victims of crucifixion. And you remember, Christ cried out, I thirst. 
Verse 16, they pierced his hands and feet. Again, remembering the Jews knew nothing of crucifixion, but Jesus used this later to confirm to his disciples, it is I who has risen from the grave. And my friend, you will know Jesus by the same marks in his hands and feet when you get to heaven. Verse 17, he's hanging there naked. You can see his ribs. Verse 18, they divide out his garments and cast lots for this particular vesture, a seamless robe that he wore. It's described over in Matthew 27. Verse 19 through 21, Jesus was pierced, confirming his death, not delivered from death, but out of death, as his prayers concluded, you remember. Nevertheless, not my will to be delivered from death, but thy will delivered out of death, through death. Look back on that phrase, verse 20. My darling, precious. It means my only child. Who is that a clear reference to? Jesus. The glory and honor bestowed upon His one and only Son. And you remember what Jesus said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And before I close, one of the most remarkable, misunderstood, and frankly explained away statements is there in verse 21. Thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Altered in every other translation because it just sounds like a mystical beast, doesn't it? First of all, the plurality, because that's interesting. The horns of the unicorns, like I thought they only, uh, right? But plurality in this Hebrew statement is not to show the number, but the intensity of what is being experienced. Secondly, you may be surprised to know that the unicorn is not such a mythical creature, but something more like a rhinoceros, yours may say a wild ox. It's a vicious, brutal killer. This creature, this unicorn, is a vicious Always deadly killer. And their identity, their identifying trait is, guess what? A single horn, right? God the Father heard his son's cry from this unicorn. He wasn't riding the back of a rhinoceros don't that's not the point but a most vicious single horned killer not riding it but hanging on it i believe this is a description of the cross and now you're you think preacher how are you getting there Nowhere in Scripture is the cross described by the shape that we all use to to describe the cross Nowhere in Scripture 
Is that the description of what the cross must be? We just hear the word cross, and that's what we think of. But imagine, if you will, in fact, a passage of Scripture that I was assigned to read in Sunday school this morning. And imagine, if you will, as John described it, as Jesus described it, and you read it in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The serpent wasn't on that. You imagine the serpent on a what? A single post. That's the cross. There's two Greek words used in description for the cross. One of them is storos, meaning one piece which is exactly what the crowd was saying in Matthew 27. If thou be the Son of God, take yourself down from the storos, this pole, cross of death. It was also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 to describe the preaching of the storos, cross, single pole. Another Greek word is used for the cross, zulon, it may also mean simply a tree or a post. That's given to us by Paul in Acts 13 when he said, After everything had been fulfilled that was written of him, that was written of Jesus, they took him down from the zulos, the cross, the tree, and laid him in a sepulcher. Now at this point you're saying, Preacher, what is a big deal about all this? But in order to fully appreciate the exactness of this phrase in Psalm 22, this unicorn. Let me read it to you again. Thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns, from the intensity, the plurality, the intensity of this single figure cross. And from there, what do we hear? Matthew 27, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, this word zulon for single cross or tree is used in Revelation 22. Ah, now maybe you see where I'm going. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, the Zulon, and may enter into the gates of the city. The original tree of life, Genesis. The original tree of life stood in the center of the Garden of Eden. It was symbolic of the fact that that God is the single source of eternal life, and likewise the cross, the Zulon, is fulfillment of the central theme of eternal life. Now you feel free to keep your image of a two-piece cross, that's fine, it makes for great drama. I get that, I have no problem with it. It really is no big deal in that regard to prove it. And if you like, you can say, no, that tree of life from the Garden of Eden is going to be transplanted now in heaven and it's going to be transplanted on earth again someday. This beautiful fruit tree, and that's fine. That works for you. But the intention of this imagery, Psalm 22, this tree of life 
it is fulfilled not in a beautiful fruit tree, but in an old, rugged, bloodied, stained cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I would believe that the tree of life that I will see in heaven will be the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. It will not be a transplanted fruit tree. It will be the ugliest thing in heaven. The old, rugged cross. It will be forever a reminder of what it took to save a worm such as